Section 41 of Hand and Ring by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 37 Under the Great Tree, Part 1. We but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. Macbeth. Imogene went to her home, confused, disordered, the prey of a thousand hopes and a thousand fears. She sought for solitude and found it within the four walls of the small room, which was now her only refuge. The two detectives who had followed her to the house, the one in the carriage, the other on foot, met as the street door closed upon her retreating form and consulted together as to their future course. Mr. Ferris thinks we ought to keep watch over the house to make sure she does not leave it again, announced Mr. Bird. Does he? Well, then, I am the man for that job, quoth Hickory. I was on this very same beat last night. Good reason why you should rest and give me a turn at the business, declared the other. Do you want it? I am willing to take it, said Bird. Well, then, after nine o'clock you shall. Why after nine? Because if she's bent on skylarking, she'll leave the house before then, laughed the other. And you want to be here if she goes out? Well, yes, rather. They compromised matters by both remaining, Bird within view of the house and Hickory on the corner within Hale. Neither expected much from this effort at surveillance. There seeming to be no good reason why she should venture forth into the streets again that night. But the watchfulness of the true detective mind is unceasing. Several hours passed. The peace of evening had come at last to the troubled town. In the streets, especially, its gentle influence was felt. And regions, which had seethed all day with a restless and impatient throng, were fast settling into their usual quiet and solitary condition. A new moon hung in the west, and to Mr. Bird, pacing the walk in front of Imogene's door, it seemed as if he had never seen the town look more lovely or less like the abode of violence and crime. All was so quiet, especially in the house opposite him. He was fast becoming convinced that further precautions were needless, and that Imogene had no intention of stirring abroad again when the window, where her light burned, suddenly became dark, and he perceived the street door cautiously open, and her tall, veiled figure emerge and pass rapidly up the street. Merely stopping to give the signal to Hickory, he hastened after her with rapid but cautious steps. She went like one, bound on no uncertain errand. Though many of the walks were heavily shaded, and the light of the lamps was not brilliant, she speeded on from corner to corner, threading the business streets with rapidity, and emerging upon the large and handsome avenue that led up toward the eastern district of the town, before Hickory could overtake Bird and find sufficient breath to ask, Where is she bound for? Who lives up this way? I don't know, answered Bird, lowering his voice in fear of startling her into a knowledge of their presence. It may be she's going to Miss Tremaine's, 
The high school is somewhere in this direction. But even as they spoke, the gliding figure before them turned into another street, and before they knew it, they were on the car track leading out to Somerset Park. Ah, I know now, whispered Hickory. It is Orcutt she is after. And pressing the arm of Bird in his enthusiasm, he speeded after her with renewed zeal. Bird, seeing no reason to dispute a fact that was every moment becoming more evident, hurried forward also, and after a long and breathless walk, for she seemed to be urged onward by flying feet, they found themselves within sight of the grand old trees that guarded the entrance to the lawyer's somewhat spacious grounds. "'What are we going to do now?' asked Bird, stopping, as they heard the gate click behind her. "'Wait and watch,' said Hickory. "'She has not led us this wild goose chase for nothing.' And leaping the hedge, he began to creep up toward the house, leaving his companion to follow or not, as he saw fit. Meantime, Imogene had passed up the walk and paused before the front door, but a single look at it seemed to satisfy her, for moving hurriedly away, she flitted around the corner of the house and stopped just before the long windows whose brightly illumined sashes proclaimed that the master of the house was still in his library. She seemed to feel relieved at this sight, pausing she leaned against the frame of a trellis-work nearby to gather up her courage or regain her breath before proceeding to make her presence known to the lawyer. As she thus leaned, the peal of the church clock was heard, striking the hour of nine. She started, possibly at finding it so late, and bending forward, looked at the window before her with an anxious eye that soon caught sight of a small opening left by the curtains, having been drawn together by a too hasty or a too careless hand, and recognizing the opportunity it afforded for a glimpse into the room before her, she stepped with a light tread upon the piazza and quietly peered within. The sight she saw never left her memory. Seated before a deadened fire, she beheld Mr. Orcutt. He was neither writing nor reading nor, in the true sense of the word, thinking. The papers he had evidently taken from his desk lay at his side undisturbed, and from one end of the room to the other, solitude, suffering, and despair seemed to fill the atmosphere and weigh upon its dreary occupant, till the single lamp which shone beside him burned dimmer and dimmer, like a life going out, or a purpose vanishing in the gloom of a stealthily approaching destiny. Imogene, who had come to this place thus secretly and at this late hour of the day, with the sole intent of procuring the advice of this man concerning the deception which had been practiced upon her before the trial, felt her heart die within her as she surveyed his rigid figure and realized all it implied. Though his position was such she could not see his face, there was in his attitude which bespoke hopelessness and an utter weariness of life, and as ash after ash fell from the grate, she imagined how the gloom deepened on the brow which till this hour had confronted the world with such undeviating courage and confidence. It was, therefore, 
a powerful shock to her when, in another moment, he looked up and, without moving his body, turned his head slowly around in such a way as to afford her a glimpse of his face. For, in all her memory of it, and she had seen it distorted by many and various emotions during the last few weeks, she had never beheld it wear such a look as now. It gave her a new idea of the man. It filled her with dismay and sent the lifeblood from her cheeks. It fascinated her, as the glimpse of any evil thing fascinates, and held her spellbound long after he had turned back again to a silent contemplation of the fire and its ever-drifting ashes. It was as if a veil had been rent before her eyes, disclosing to her a living soul writhing in secret struggle with its own worst passions, and horrified at the revelation, more than horrified at the remembrance that it was her own action of the morning which had occasioned this change in one she had long reverenced, if not loved. She sank helplessly upon her knees and pressed her face to the window in a prayer for courage to sustain this new woe and latest, if not heaviest, disappointment. It came while she was kneeling, came in the breath of the cold night wind, perhaps, for rising up, she turned her forehead gratefully to the breeze, and drew in long draughts of it before she lifted her hand and knocked upon the window. The sharp, shrill sound made by her fingers on the pane reassured her as much as it startled him. Gathering up her long cloak, which had fallen apart in her last hurried movement, she waited with growing self-possession for his appearance at the window. He came almost immediately came with his usual hasty step and with much of his usual expression on his well-disciplined features. Flinging aside the curtains, he cried impatiently, Who is there? But at the sight of the tall figure of Imogene standing upright and firm on the piazza without, he drew back with a gesture of dismay which was almost forbidding in its character. She saw it, but did not pause. Pushing up the window, she stepped into the room, then, as he did not offer to help her, turned and shut the window behind her and carefully arranged the curtains. He, meantime, stood watching her with eyes in whose fierce light burned equal love and equal anger. When all was completed, she faced him. Instantly, a cry broke from his lips. "'You are here!' he exclaimed, as if her presence were more than he could meet or stand. But in another moment the forlornness of her position seemed to strike him, and he advanced toward her, saying in a voice husky with passion, Wretched woman, what have you done? Was it not enough that for weeks, months now, you have played with my love and misery, as with toys, that you should rise up at this last minute and crush me before the whole world with a story, mad as it is false, of yourself being a criminal and the destroyer of the woman for whose death your miserable lover is being tried? Had you no consideration, no pity, if not for yourself, ruined by this day's work, for me, who have sacrificed everything, done everything, the most devoted man or lawyer could do, to save this fellow, and win you for my wife? Sir, said she, meeting the burning anger of his look with the coldness of a set despair, 
as if in the doubt awakened by his changed demeanor, she sought to probe his mind for its hidden secret. I did what any other woman would have done in my place. When we are pushed to the wall, we tell the truth. The truth? Was that his laugh that rang startlingly through the room? The truth. You told the truth, Imogene. Imogene, is any such farce necessary with me? Her lips, which had opened, closed again, and she did not answer for a moment. Then she asked, How do you know that what I said was not the truth? How do I know? He paused as if to get his breath. How do I know? He repeated, calling up all his self-control to sustain her gaze unmoved. Do you think I have lost my reason, Imogene, that you put me such a question as that? How do I know you're innocent? Recall your own words and acts since the day we met at Mrs. Clemens' house and tell me how it would be possible for me to think anything else of you. But her purpose did not relax, neither did she falter as she returned. Mr. Orcutt, will you tell me what has ever been said by me or what you have ever known me to do that would make it certain I did not commit this crime myself? His indignation was too much for his courtesy. Imogene, he commanded, be silent. I will not listen to any further arguments of this sort. Isn't it enough that you have destroyed my happiness, that you should seek to sport with my good sense? I say you are innocent as a babe unborn, not only of the crime itself, but of any complicity in it. Every word you have spoken, every action you have taken, since the day of Mrs. Clements' death, proves you to be the victim of a fixed conviction totally at war with the statement you were pleased to make today. Only your belief in the guilt of another and your... your... He stopped, choked. The thought of his rival maddened him. She immediately seized the opportunity to say, Mr. Orcutt, I cannot argue about what I have done. It is over and cannot be remedied. It is true I have destroyed myself, but this is no time to think of that. All I can think of or mourn over now is that, by destroying myself, I have not succeeded in saving Craig Mansell. If her purpose was to probe the lawyer's soul for the deadly wound that had turned all his sympathies to gall, she was successful at last. Turning upon her with a look in which despair and anger were strangely mingled, he cried, and me, Imogene, have you no thought of me? Sir, said she, any thought from one disgraced as I am now would be an insult to one of your character and position. It was true. In the eyes of the world, Tremont Orcutt and Imogene Dare henceforth stood as far apart as the poles. Realizing it only too well, he uttered a half-inarticulate exclamation and trod restlessly to the other end of the room. When he came back, it was with more of the lawyer's aspect and less of the baffled lover's. Imogene, he said, what could have induced you to resort to an expedient so dreadful? Have you lost confidence in me? Had I not told you I would save this man from his threatened fate? You cannot do everything, she replied. There are limits even to a power like yours. I knew that Craig was lost, if I gave the court the testimony which Mr. Ferris expected from me. 
And then he cried, seizing with his usual quickness at the admission which had thus unconsciously perhaps slipped from her, you acknowledge you uttered a perjury to save yourself from making declarations you believe to be hurtful to the prisoner? A faint smile crossed her lips, and her whole aspect suddenly changed. Yes, she said, I have no motive for hiding it from you now. I perjured myself to escape destroying Craig Mansell. I was scarcely the mistress of my own actions. I had suffered so much, I was ready to do anything to save the man I had so relentlessly pushed to his doom. I forgot that God does not prosper a lie. The jealous gleam which answered her from her lawyer's eyes was a revelation. You regret then, he said, that you tossed my happiness away with the breath of your perjured lips? I regret I did not tell the truth and trust God. At this answer, uttered with the simplicity of a penitent spirit, Mr. Orcutt unconsciously drew back. And may I ask, what has caused this sudden regret, he inquired, in a tone not far removed from mockery. The generous action of the prisoner in relieving you from your self-imposed burden of guilt by an acknowledgment that struck at the foundation of the defense I had so carefully prepared? No, was her short reply. That could afford me no joy. Of whatever sin he may be guilty, he is at least free from the reproach of accepting deliverance at the expense of a woman. I am sorry I said what I did today, because a revelation has since been made to me which proves I could never have sustained myself in the position I took, and that it was mere suicidal folly in me to attempt to save Craig Mansell by such means. A Revelation End of Chapter 37 Part 1